your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. In the mid-90s, Dr. Terrence Owens, a psychologist with the Mackley Adolescent Psychiatric Program in San Francisco, was working the late-night shift on a suicide hotline. In the wee hours of one morning, he answered a call from a boy who told the doctor his name was Terminator. Owens spent an hour or so talking to the young man and told him that if he ever needed to call the hotline again, to request Dr. Owens. And Terminator did, sometimes several times a week. Over the next few months of conversation, Owens learned that Terminator was actually Terminator's middle name. His full name was Jeremy Terminator Leroy. He'd been born and raised in West Virginia, though raised might be too rich a word for how Jeremy spent his first 15 years or so. His mother, Sarah, was a lot lizard, a sex worker who specifically works at truck stops, and was 14 when she gave birth to Jeremy. His father, who had never been in the picture, was a famous theological writer. Dr. Owens asked Jeremy if his voice had already broken. Though Jeremy was about 16 years old, his voice was rather high. Jeremy told him that the voice he had was the one he would always have, because when he was younger, his genitals had been mutilated, so he wouldn't go through puberty. I don't think that's how that works. While mutilating a boy's genitals might keep those from further development, I don't think that would affect the hormonal part of puberty. But anyway. Genital mutilation was hardly the only abuse Jeremy had gone through. As soon as he was old enough, which sadly might not have been very old at all, Jeremy's mother required him to turn tricks himself. In addition to the mental and emotional scars this would have left him with, Jeremy also contracted not only HIV, but herpetic Kaposi sarcoma, which is a kind of cancer that grows under the skin, the lining of the mouth and throat, or in other organs. It's especially dangerous to have if one is HIV positive, which often goes hand in hand with Kaposi sarcoma. While these days Kaposi sarcoma isn't the most serious of cancers, back in the 90s, with more rudimentary treatment combined with HIV and AIDS, the outlook wasn't great. But in all the time Owens spoke to Jeremy, he never seemed to get better or worse, nor was he seeking treatment because he couldn't afford it. Around the age of 13 or 14, Jeremy escaped his life of sex work in West Virginia by making his way to San Francisco. Unfortunately, once there, he fell back into sex work as a way to support himself, and spent a few years homeless. In the first year or so that Jeremy and Dr. Owens spoke, Owens encouraged Jeremy to write. Jeremy already loved to read. He picked up a love for literature, he told Owens, from various Johns he'd slept with. JT took this advice and shared the resulting work with Owens. The writing was truly remarkable, especially coming from a boy with little, if any, formal education. Owens told Jeremy that he should try to get some of his pieces published, though publishing not being Owens' field, he wasn't sure how Jeremy would go about that. But Jeremy must have figured it out, because in 1998, Jeremy's short story Baby Doll was included in a collection of short stories under the name J.T. Leroy. It's unclear when Jeremy met Emily Frazier and her roommate Astor, but they recruited Jeremy to write lyrics for their band, Thistle. Emily was an outreach worker who helped the homeless and eventually invited Jeremy to move in with them, which he did. With no apparent job aside from writing for Thistle, Jeremy spent his free time composing his own work and trying to get published again. He had finished a novel about his mother and his upbringing that he wanted to see on shelves. 
The early internet days of publishing were a little more Wild West than they are today. Jeremy got his hands on a list of agents and publishers and used Emily and Astor's phone, as well as his personal fax machine, to cold call and submit to everyone he could. The fax machine, he told his new roommates, as well as Dr. Owens, had been given to him by a John when he was homeless, and he'd keep it chained to his leg. If he needed to send a fax, he did it from a public bathroom. Chaining a large machine to your leg on the off chance you'll need to send a fax, rather than using one at the library, seems like the most difficult way to, of doing things, but what do I know? Now that Jeremy lived with Emily and Aster, though, the fax machine could sit in one place, a place that wasn't a grimy bathroom, and contact agent after agent after agent. And even though this is often frowned upon, many publishers and agents only take recommendations, this worked for Jeremy. Not only did he convince a few people to read his manuscript, but he charmed them so much that they happily talked on the phone with him for hours, or emailed back and forth for days. And almost always, they gave him the name of someone else in publishing to contact, just to get his novel seen by the widest audience possible. And finally, in 1999, British House Bloomsbury Publishing agreed to publish Jeremy's manuscript, which would be put on the shelves with the title Sarah. Sarah, while closely inspired by Jeremy's life, was presented as fiction, and was narrated by a nameless boy whose mother, Sarah, was a lot lizard in West Virginia. The boy is pimped out as a quote-unquote boy girl who wears a raccoon penis bone around his neck as a talisman. The boy eventually abandons his pimp at the truck stop and finds another one who abuses him. When the boy escapes and returns to the truck stop, his mother has disappeared and he can't rejoin the boy-girl collective. He tells the reader that he wrote this book because his therapist, Dr. Owens, thinks it would help his recovery. Sarah was a hit. While the subject matter is dark and mature, Jeremy presented the story with humor and as a kind of fable. It also did what few pieces of 90s literature did, tackled themes of gender identity. Both the literary and the civilian population raved about Sarah. Stephen Burt, a poet and critic, called it a work of art, and the book's surprising popularity required a book tour to be quickly thrown together. J.C. Leroy was about to hit the road. No one knew what to expect when Jeremy J.T. Leroy appeared at his first reading. The person who showed up was strange, but then again, so was the book he'd written. Dressed in very androgynous clothing, Jeremy kept his sunglasses on at all times, including inside, and his shoulder-length hair was clearly a blonde wig. But people weren't there to judge Jeremy's fashion sense. They wanted to hear him read. But that didn't happen the way they expected it either. His friend, Emily Fraser introduced him, but when he got to the microphone, the crowd could tell how terrified he was. After standing speechless in front of the crowd for a few moments, Jeremy dislodged the mic from its stand and took it with him as he crawled under the table on the stage, where he was blocked from view by the tablecloth as he did the expected reading. Afterward, he signed books with his head down and then quickly disappeared. The whole presentation had been weird, and it made people love Jeremy even more, he was such an artist, such an individual. He didn't care about the fame, all he wanted was to write. Even at the very first event, though, there were whispers about what the obvious disguise was hiding. Or rather, who. While teen authors have existed, they're rare, and some literary folks and reporters doubted that Jeremy's story was true, or that the person they saw crawl under the table was the true author. Mark Ewart, the event organizer and a friend of Jeremy's, told Jeremy that people suspected either Ewart's ex, novelist Dennis Cooper, was the true author, or even Ewart himself. 
But really, no one cared who Jeremy was that much. They just wanted him to write more. In 1999, the same year as Sarah came out, Jeremy published again a collection of short stories called The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, and then in 2004 published Harold's End. In between his last two books, he contributed to well-known journals and magazines and became a media and Hollywood darling. The more Jeremy was in the public eye, the more questions were asked. This isn't that weird. Everyday people love to learn facts about celebrities. But even celebrities were flummoxed by Jeremy, and he was very popular with celebrities. He was friends with Winona Ryder, Carrie Fisher, and Liv Tyler. Madonna and fellow inappropriate sunglasses wearer Bono were fans of his books and sent him gifts. Jeremy loved to party with his famous friends in and around Hollywood. But the strange thing about Jeremy, well, one of the strange things, is that he seemed to have memory problems. He'd spend hours talking on the phone and writing emails with these people, but when he saw them in person, he didn't understand when they referenced one of their past conversations. When Jeremy's assistant Speedy, a British woman, accompanied him to the parties, she seemed to be able to jog his memory about past conversations, but she couldn't always be there. Also, Jeremy was extremely seductive over the phone, but very awkward in real life. His public persona and look was compared to Andy Warhol. Outside of partying with his friends, Jeremy tried to avoid public contact. Most of his interviews were done over email or the phone, and sometimes, when he was supposed to do an in-person interview, Assistant Speedy would show up instead. By the time Jeremy's last book, Harold's End, was published in late 2004, people were very suspicious that Jeremy wasn't who he said he was. And after five years in the public eye, his endearing weirdness wasn't as much of a shield as it was in the beginning. Author Mary Gateskill was supposed to have dinner with Jeremy one night in 2005, but Speedy attended. While Gateskill enjoyed dinner and a conversation with Speedy, calling her very bright, she knew something wasn't quite right. However, she said later that if the whole Jeremy persona was a hoax, it wasn't hurting anyone, so she wasn't going to worry about it. Journalist Stephen Beachy felt otherwise. Personally, I think BT's negative laser focus on Jeremy came from not liking Jeremy's first book, Sarah, and not being able to let that go. He said that Sarah might claim to be about the goings-on at a truck stop in West Virginia, but Jeremy's writing was so nonspecific that he, quote, came away knowing nothing about truck stop prostitution in West Virginia or about West Virginia. In fact, it was Beachy who started suggesting at the very first public reading of Sarah that Jeremy was actually just a pseudonym for a more famous writer trying to become relevant again. But Beachy's ire seemed especially provoked when he read Harold's End, Jeremy's third book that was set in the homeless population of San Francisco, based on Jeremy's experiences. Beachy may not have known enough about West Virginia or sex work to be able to call Sarah inaccurate, but after reading Harold's End, he knew Jeremy's tales about being homeless in California were lies. The book was set in an area of San Francisco called The Polk. Centered around Polk Street, this part of the city was a social hangout for the LGBTQ population. Not only did the neighborhood offer gay bars, but it was also where a lot of the homeless youth lived, many of them LGBTQ. And as it happens, Beachy had grown up in The Polk and had been an outreach worker for the homeless youth there. While Beachy had moved on by the time Jeremy claimed to have been there, Jeremy's description of the whole experience rang false to Beachy, and if this kid was achieving fame by claiming to have suffered like people he knew had suffered, something had to be done about it. So Beachy went back to his old stomping grounds, armed with a recorder and a photo of Jeremy. He asked anyone who might have known him. 
outreach workers, hustlers, Johns, and showed them the picture. None of them knew Jeremy. But Beachy knew that one outreach worker, one he hadn't spoken to, had known Jeremy back in the day. Emily Fraser, who, after meeting him, offered Jeremy a place to live. Emily had occasionally been by Jeremy's side during his events, and Beachy wanted to find out who she was. He plugged her name into Google. One of the first things to pop up was an Amazon review Emily had left for Jeremy's first book, Sarah. We demand a sequel, she'd written in her rave review. But that wasn't exactly a smoking gun. Of course, Emily would support her friend by writing a good review. But below that review in the Google results, Beachy discovered that Emily, too, was a published writer and a singer for the band Thistle. Looking up Thistle, the band for whom Jeremy allegedly wrote lyrics, Beachy discovered that Thistle had been created long before Jeremy was involved, and used to be called Daddy Don't Go. Looking at pictures of the band members, Beachy recognized Emily, but she was credited as Speedy. Speedy, of course, was just a stage name. Emily slash Speedy's real name was Laura Albert. While Beachy could now link Laura Albert to two people in Jeremy's life, he wasn't sure what she really had to do with Jeremy aside from being his roommate and handler. But then he listened to some of Daddy Don't Go's songs before Jeremy wrote for them, and the lyrics were extremely reminiscent of passages in Sarah. Even though this was his only proof in that moment, Beachy was pretty sure that Laura Albert was Jeremy. Laura had had a pretty hard life. Born in Brooklyn in 1965, her world was rocked when her parents got divorced. Living with her mother, Laura and sister Joanna endured a lot of physical abuse from their mom, and there was always a creepy boyfriend around. One of them molested Laura for years. Laura refers to her childhood self as a very delicately spinning top, adding, it doesn't take much to set the top off its course, which is exactly what the molestation did to Laura. She expressed her turmoil while playing with her Barbies, who would be beaten, raped, and committed acts of child abuse. Laura blamed herself for the abuse, and still does to this day, saying that, quote, something was very, very broken in me. Even so, she did what she could to deter her abuser. Since he made it clear that he liked her thin, Laura purposely gained a lot of weight to try and make herself less attractive to him, which led to a weight problem that followed her into her 40s. According to Laura, her mother knew about the molestation, but did nothing to prevent it. As a preteen, Laura started calling mental health hotlines, but when asked for basic information about herself, Laura would tell every worker that she was a boy. Since she'd been molested for so long, Laura believed that it was just par for the course of being a girl, so she wouldn't get any sympathy. It never occurred to me to call as myself. What reaction would there be except you're fat and ugly and disgusting and you deserve it? She said she felt relief after every call, but she wished she could become a boy so she'd have, she believed, less of a chance of being sexually abused. Every night, she'd pray to wake up as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy that, quote, a man would love and want to fuck. As she grew up, Laura was part of punk rock and skinhead groups. Having naturally dark features, I have to wonder if Laura's wish to be blonde-haired and blue-eyed had any link to skinhead beliefs. She grew increasingly more suicidal until finally at 14, she was hospitalized. When she was hospitalized again at 16, she was made a ward of the state. As an adult, Laura was a successful, if non-traditional, freelancer. She worked as a sex line operator, became known as an online sexpert who reviewed sex toys, and published her writing under pseudonyms. She also worked on pieces narrated by a teen boy who had been through a life even harder than hers. 
In her 20s, Laura met Jeffrey Noop, fell in love, and the two moved in together. But while Laura had finally found love, she was still massively depressed and suicidal. When Jeffrey was asleep, Laura would drag the landline into the bathroom and call suicide hotlines. Just like when she was a child, Laura never gave her real identity. When the phone was ringing, quote, I didn't know who was going to come out of me. I didn't know who would bubble up. On one particular early morning, when Dr. Terrence Owens picked up the phone, the person who bubbled up told Owens that his name was Terminator. About the name, Laura said, I never would have chosen it. It was a stupid name, but it was his name. Laura hadn't planned for Terminator, aka Jeremy, to be a long-lasting persona. She played a new young man nearly every time she called a hotline, but none of them had stuck, so why would Jeremy? But Laura's life started to revolve around her calls with Dr. Owens, and Owens knew her as Jeremy Terminator Leroy, so that's who she was. In fact, despite Laura slash Jeremy talking to Owens throughout Jeremy's fame, Owens only ever knew Laura as Jeremy. Laura was already a writer, but after Dr. Owens encouraged Jeremy to write about his tragic life, Laura started reading voraciously because, quote, Jeremy wanted to be a better writer. People make a lot of Laura referring to Jeremy in the third person, which she does anytime she mentions something he did or thought or said. But as both an actor and a writer, I don't think this is weird. Jeremy was a character to Laura, so why would she speak in first person about him? He is not her, and she never thought that way. Even though Laura and Jeremy's pasts were different, if equally tragic, they had the same writing style and the same gender dysphoria. Of course, back in the 90s, the layman didn't know the term gender dysphoria, so all Laura knew is that she didn't feel comfortable in a female body. With Jeremy, she was able to experiment. Jeremy grew up cross-dressing and somewhere in his early 20s had gender affirmation surgery. According to one interview, Jeremy said that he was male-identifying when he wrote Sarah, but quote, now I don't know what I am. These days, Jeremy, and perhaps Laura, probably would have used they-them pronouns, but that wasn't commonly done then. Laura's gender dysphoria reached its peak when she got pregnant at 32. As far as I can tell, the pregnancy was wanted, if not planned, but Laura said that using her body to create life committed the ultimate betrayal of Jeremy. Quote, There is no hope I'm going to give Jeremy the body that he really wants. She was so depressed by this that she stopped writing for a while. When asked about Laura possibly being JT Leroy, a friend said, This is totally the kind of thing Laura might do. She craved the limelight, but she didn't really want all the attention. Part of the reason Laura wouldn't have wanted to be famous herself is that she hated her body. As I mentioned, in order to deter her abuser, Laura gained a lot of weight as a child and continued to be overweight into her adulthood. While I don't think fans of JT Leroy would have cared how much JT weighed, Laura cared, especially after she had her son and felt she could never have the body Jeremy deserved. Somewhere in the whirlwind of Jeremy's climb to fame, Laura got gastric bypass surgery, and once she was thin, she started accompanying Jeremy more and more. But she never did appear as Jeremy herself. That opportunity went to her sister-in-law, Savannah Noop. Savannah was Laura's partner Jeffrey's sister, and was about the same age as Jeremy, born in 1980. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. She was an aspiring fashion designer, and Laura recruited her to be the lead singer of Thistle, even though Savannah had no experience. Again, I think Laura might have asked her because Laura, a singer and performer for years, felt too awkward in her body to be the lead singer. Much like Laura, Savannah had some degree of gender dysphoria. 
She didn't have the words to describe it either, but when Laura asked her to portray Jeremy, who was very androgynous, Savannah was intrigued. An ever-present part of her Jeremy appearance, aside from the wigs and sunglasses, was a binder so that her breasts wouldn't be as prominent. While playing Jeremy, Savannah was also waitressing at a Thai restaurant and attended college for the first year or so of her journey as Jeremy. Savannah's natural personality influenced how Jeremy acted. She had terrible stage fright, hence climbing under the table at the first ever reading of Sarah, didn't like being in the public eye, but loved partying with all her famous fans. In fact, Savannah had a romantic relationship with the actress Asia Argento. The two were close enough that Savannah told Asia her real name. Even so, Argento later said that she thought Jeremy really was a boy because he had such hairy legs. A rumor went around that Jeremy was the father of Argento's baby, but that couldn't have been true as there was no sperm present during their sexual encounters. In 2005, star photographer Mary Ellen Mark took pictures of Jeremy for Vanity Fair and came away pretty sure that Jeremy, or whoever was playing him, was female. However, she didn't really see that as a problem, saying that the masquerade didn't harm anyone. However, when the pictures were published, the article they accompanied outed Laura as the true author. The Vanity Fair article came after Stephen Beachy's expose. This story was later confirmed by the New York Times, with journalist Warren St. John saying, if this is all a big hustle, it's a great hustle, and I applaud it. There were a lot of mixed feelings about JT Leroy being exposed as a fake persona, both for the people who helped create him and the people who were fans or critics. Savannah stopped making appearances immediately after the Vanity Fair article was published, and the media at large turned on Laura as a liar. However, Laura didn't see what the big deal was. She referred to Jeremy as her phantom limb, a persona that allowed her to write things she wouldn't be able to write as herself. She also pointed out that people have used pseudonyms and avatars since books were written. In fact, literary hoaxes go back to the 18th century. As social media became more popular with more varied ways to represent yourself, people who were angry with Laura calmed down. Now everyone was portraying themselves in a very curated way to the public. As I'm sure you've guessed, the reason Jeremy seemed to never recall conversations he'd had with his friends or fans before he met them, Laura had been the one writing and speaking as Jeremy over email and the phone. But even if the media and JT Leroy fans became less heated after Jeremy was exposed as a fake in 2005, the legal system wasn't so forgiving. The film rights to Sarah had been sold, and Laura had signed the contract as JT Leroy, which is fraud. The case went to trial in 2007. Laura was found guilty and ordered to pay the director $16,500. After her hoax was revealed, Laura, feeling defensive and also much more comfortable in her body, gave a lot of interviews. She told one reporter, I survived sexual and physical abuse and found a way to turn it into art. Having struggled with issues of gender fluidity when there was no language for it, I created a character both on and off the page who modeled this as-yet-to-be-named state of being. She was incensed by Savannah publishing a book about her time playing Jeremy in 2007, saying that Savannah was just missing the spotlight and looking for any way to get it back. Laura and Jeffrey separated the next year, and I can't help but wonder if Savannah's book played a small part in that. But after the initial indignation of fans and the media, Laura's writing got her some big jobs. Before the hoax was revealed, Laura wanted to write for the TV show Deadwood. She sent her three books to the show's head writer, and he called Jeremy to tell him how much he loved the books and invited him to set. Laura took a chance and told him the truth, that she was Jeremy. 
and the writer still offered her a job writing for the show. If you're alive in the same time as a Shakespeare, he said, and you don't help, that's a sin. She's also taught writing classes at colleges and workshops previously run by famous authors like David Eggers, and has sat on the juries of a few international film festivals. She's written for Dot429, the world's largest LGBTQ professional network, and speaks at their conferences. In 2012, she released all three JT Leroy books as a box set under her own name. A hit rock musical was put on in Brazil, the title of which translates to JT, a punk rock fairy tale. In 2014, despite everyone knowing that JT Leroy wasn't a real person, he was invited to an HIV-AIDS fundraiser put on by the Academy of Friends Oscar party in San Francisco. That night, Jeremy was played by gender-fluid model Rain Dove. After losing her six-year gig as Jeremy, Savannah felt very lost. Her clothing line that she'd founded as herself while being Jeremy, called Tink, closed in 2009, and in 2013 she moved to New York City to finish her bachelor's degree, later earning an MBA in sculpture and extended media. Her art has been shown at the Museum of Modern Art, ICA Philadelphia, and Essex Flower Gallery, to name a few. The film rights to her memoir about being Jeremy were sold, and the movie starring Laura Dern and Kristen Stewart came out in 2019. After playing Jeremy, Savannah identified as non-binary for many years, but more recently I saw that she was using female pronouns again. These days in the world of social media letting everyone pull the wool over everyone's eyes in some way or another, the JT Leroy hoax doesn't seem so bad. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.